Oral questions by members. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Yesterday, we learned a woman was randomly attacked in James Bay, almost directly behind this legislature, when a man pushed her into the corner of a building face first, cutting her face and giving her head injuries. Now, despite denials by the Attorney General, random assaults in our communities have increased dramatically. When will the Attorney General end his catch and release and get prolific offenders off of our streets? Attorney General. Uh, thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Um, my uh, sincere uh, sympathy and empathy to the victim of this uh, horrible random assault. Um, I imagine she and her family are going through quite a difficult time and the broader community in the feelings of safety and security. The Minister for Public Safety and I take this issue very seriously, despite what the member suggested in her question. It's not correct. We take it very seriously. I've been on my feet saying that for a couple of weeks now. I look forward to making an announcement this afternoon with the Minister for Public Safety and mayors of our province about how we're going to wrap our hands around this issue and address it, because that's what our government does. When we see a problem, we move to solve it. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Nobody has confidence in this attorney in whatever he will announce, given his terrible track record for five years and his past statements. In 2011, he said, quote, we have serious concerns with the results of the prolific offender program and are continuing to events investigate aggressive policing tactics, end quote. So will the Attorney General end his catch and release system and take action to protect British Columbians so they can feel safe in their communities? Attorney General. Well, thank you, uh, Honourable Chair. I think the police themselves will tell you uh, when it comes to issues of mental health and addiction and wherever those issues overlap with behaviors that are criminal in nature, that police need more than just the criminal justice system. We need mental health and addiction supports. Uh, and for some people, those need to be compulsory because they will not take up the voluntary supports we offer. And so police have been, uh, we've been meeting with them. We've been going over these issues with the, in relation to uh, random stranger attacks as well as prolific uh, property crime. Uh, the member says in her question uh, that she doesn't uh, appreciate my track record on these issues. I'll point out two similar issues that came to my attention. One was the financial crisis at ICBC. We now have the best insurance rates and the best benefits in Canada following my work, take, carried on by the Minister of Public Safety. The second, we had widespread and rampant money laundering in our casinos, took on that issue. We no longer have that problem. So just like that, Honourable Speaker, we've identified this issue, we'll address this issue, and I assure members of the public who have been victims of crime, we take this very seriously. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, this government's empty rhetoric and lack of results is failing British Columbians on a wide range of issues, whether it's the catch and release system of this Attorney General and spiking crime rates, the crumbling of our health care system in front of our very eyes, or the lack of any measures around affordability. This government is failing by every measure. Gas prices are expected to hit an all-time high of $2.17 per litre tomorrow. 
This means it's going to cost some families upwards of $200 just to fill up their family vehicle. It's been 215 weeks since the Premier first promised action if gas prices stayed high. But today, life is more unaffordable with sky-high gas prices and soaring inflation and no help in sight. How much longer will families have to wait for a real long-term solution and relief on gas prices from this government? Minister of Energy and Mines. I think everyone recognizes that the war in Ukraine has dramatically shifted energy markets, not only here in British Columbia, not only in Canada, but around the world. Uh, as a provincial jurisdiction, we do not control world, the world price of oil. Uh, so we have, but, but here in, within British Columbia, we do have a jurisdiction that's exercised through the BC Utilities Commission. That's why we created the Fuel Price Transparency Act. The, uh, it empowered the energy watchdog to investigate fuel prices here. In addition, thanks to the work of the Attorney General while he was responsible for ICBC, we are now going to be able to rebate to drivers um, the sum of $110 per person. Uh, that, that is beginning this week uh, uh, through uh, the process of uh, um, uh, rebates uh, by either mail, uh, by credit card, or by check. So, so the, there is some relief on its way. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson, supplemental. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Sadly, the, this minister and her cabinet has got their retroactive pay likely in their bank accounts long before people are going to see any relief from this government when it comes to gas prices. The war in Ukraine is impacting everybody. Yet in Washington State, right across the border, gas is $1.50 a litre today, Canadian. In Alberta, it's 40 to 50 to 60 cents a litre, depending on the day, cheaper than in British Columbia. We have the highest gas prices with the highest gas taxes in North America. Despite five years of empty NDP rhetoric, BC continues to have that. Two weeks ago, the Premier said he directed the Finance Minister to, and I quote, bring forward initiatives to assist with inflation. We'll see how that goes. So 215 weeks ago, the Premier said he had a plan for high gas prices. Two weeks ago, he said he was still working on inflation. When are we going to see any type of discernible action from this government to help people with their inflationary costs at the pump. Minister. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I want to congratulate Kevin Falcon on his uh, victory in the by-election. <laughs> and no doubt he will be here very soon in the legislature to You'll have an opportunity to explain this statement that he made uh, back in 2008. Uh, I don't want to pretend that there's any magic solution to the fact that fuel prices have doubled in the past 12 months. He was asked about this statement just recently on the Michael Smith Show, and, the, and he said, this is what I said, and it's true. So we'll, we'll await his solutions perhaps next week.
Shall we continue? Member for Saanich and Northern Islands. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Today is the uh, National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, also known as Red Dress Day. And earlier this week, this assembly celebrated a new anti-racism uh, data collection initiative, a, a new bill. Yesterday afternoon, I celebrated that initiative, and I wish that this BC NDP government's commitment extended, uh, Mr. Speaker, to environmental racism. In northern BC, spurred on by this government's record-setting investment and subsidization of the liquefied gas industry, uh, fracking is widespread. We're learning about the tragic and deadly consequences of fracking. We're learning more and more about it every day. Emissions of chemicals that cause and exacerbate birth defects, rare cancers, and asthma. These are disproportionately impacting Indigenous communities, Mr. Speaker. One study from the U.S. found that children born near fracking sites were 25% more likely to be born at low birth weights, or less than 5.5 pounds. They found an increased risk of childhood mortality and poorer educational outcomes. A lead author from the Nobel Peace Prize winning group called Physicians for Social Responsibility called fracking, quote, the worst thing I've ever seen. Through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Premier, does he care that his government is actively engaged in environmental racism against Indigenous communities, particularly Indigenous children and pregnant people? Minister of uh, Reconciliation. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker, and thank you to my colleague from Saanich North and the Islands for the question. <clears throat> In the northeast of British Columbia, where the fracking activity to which he refers primarily occurs, we are engaged in addressing a decision, an historic decision of the BC Supreme Court, namely the Yahe decision. We are doing so with all the Treaty 8 nations who the judge concluded had had their treaty rights, their Treaty 8 rights violated through oil and gas activity. We are engaged in a series of initiatives to heal the land and to do some of the things that the members suggest need to be done. We are doing that in close collaboration and negotiation, not with the victor in that litigation, namely the Blueberry River First Nation, but all the other Treaty 8 nations. We are consulting widely with industry, and we are working with local governments to make sure we get it right. Member for Saanich Northern Island, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. There's nothing uh, ethical about LNG development. Neither the government nor the official opposition grasp that, Mr. Speaker. Not only is LNG Canada the single largest uh, point source of emissions uh, in this province going to be, uh, undermining any efforts uh, that this government is making to combat the climate crisis, it's disproportionately impacting Indigenous people. It's environmental racism, Mr. Speaker. Researchers at the University of Toronto are undertaking further study of the direct impacts of fracking on fetal health, and more research is needed. But instead of contributing to that, the BC Oil and Gas Commission just criticized the existing study. Nobody seems to care about the fact that this study of pregnant people found higher contaminant levels in homes near fracking sites, and that the highest levels of exposure were found among Indigenous pregnant people who participated. Indigenous participants' homes showed notably higher concentration of chloroform, acetone, and decanal. There were higher levels of uh, trihalomethane in their tap water, Mr. Speaker. My question again is to the Premier. How does the Premier reconcile his commitments to Indigenous people 
while ramping up this fracked gas development that is clearly putting the lives of Indigenous children and pregnant people at risk. Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. Mr. Speaker, I think it is true that there has been a disproportionate impact on Indigenous peoples in the Northeast, and that, of course, was the conclusion uh, of Madam Justice Burke in the Yahe decision to which I previously referred. And that is why, because of that treaty being violated over a hundred years or more, we are rolling up our sleeves and doing what the court asked that we do. And in doing so, we will address the impacts that the member refers to. These impacts are real. We are not shying away from that. And indeed, we're taking the kind of steps in partnership with industry, in partnership with, with local government, to make sure that we have a viable Northeast economy, but that we, the balance is restruck in a way that works for everyone, those of us who benefit from that activity in the South, but particularly to address the impacts on those who suffer in the Northeast from those, from those consequences. It's not going to be a simple uh, solution, Mr. Speaker, but it's an overdue one, and we're rolling up our sleeves and doing that hard work now. Member for Caribou Chilcotin. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Our health care system is in crisis, and despite NDP gag orders, doctors and nurses who are so committed to their patients are speaking out. In my community, a very respected surgeon who's practiced for 28 years at Caribou Memorial Hospital has resigned. Dr. Dan Brosick says, and I quote, there's a constant push to cancel or delay surgeries without consideration of patient care or needs. Patient care has been continuously eroded to the point where I can no longer participate in good conscience, end quote. Mr. Speaker, this morning I've been told that there's at least one more doctor who will be resigning. Will the Minister of Health act now to stop the crisis at, at Caribou Memorial Hospital? Minister of Health. Thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. Um, with respect to uh, surgeries in British Columbia, uh, the member will know that I gave a comprehensive report yesterday on surgery in the province. He will know, and this has been disruptive everywhere in the province. The COVID-19 pandemic led to the cancellations of surgeries in interior health in March of 2020, and again significantly in 2021. These were, uh, uh, these were decisions reluctantly taken because of the circumstances of COVID-19. Notwithstanding that, is the outstanding work of doctors everywhere in BC. We set a record year for surgeries in British Columbia last year, reflecting the commitment of the surgical, our surgical renewal plan, the commitment of that plan to patients in BC. A, a record number than ever before, 84 measures to increase surgeries, and working with doctors and surgeons everywhere in BC. We are always concerned when doctors express concern about, the, about issues in the system. Our commitment the Caribou Memorial Hospital and the standard of care there could not be higher. That's why we engaged in 2018 in a major capital rebuild of the hospital, ensuring our long-term commitment to the people of Williams Lake and region, and why we'll continue to work with healthcare professionals everywhere to ensure the quality of the system, even in these very challenging times. Supplemental. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Concern and action are two different things. And what the residents of Caribou Chilcotin need is action, and they need it right now. This is. <laughs> the minister can try to dismiss what is happening in our health care system, but as I said, our residents are concerned. 
Honestly, they're afraid. I've heard from multiple doctors and nurses at the hospital that they are subject every day to a toxic workplace with harassment, bullying, and worker intimidation. They are gravely concerned about a declining patient care, but they're afraid to speak out. And I quote, due to fears of vengeful behavior, retaliation, persecution for coming forward, end quote. Just this morning, three more staff have reached out to me and contacted me with respect to concerns for patient care that is diminishing. Will the minister end his gag order on concerned health care workers, listen to them, and act now to stop a collapse at Caribou Memorial Hospital? Minister of Health. Uh, Honourable Speaker, um, I appreciate that in this legislature there is the use of rhetoric. I appreciate that. But, Honourable Speaker, I appreciate that, and it's used on all sides. But, Honourable Speaker, I think um, there's a certain duty to accuracy. Honourable Speaker, uh, last week, the member for Abbotsford, other members of this House, referred to an interior health document that they said was evidence of what the member talked about. That document, and they quoted extensively from that document. In fact, the document in question, Honourable Speaker, dates to March 2004. March 2004. I now, I know that members are honourable and that would have been an unintentional misleading of the situation. But it's a serious situation. It's been a code of contact that's been in place since 2004. There's whistleblower policies in the Interior Health Authority and everyone else to protect people from, from uh, to ensure fair access to the public to information. This House passed in 2019 the Public Interest Disclosure Act. That applies to public servants. It will apply and take over from those policies in the coming year, Honourable Speaker. The importance of whistleblower protection is fundamental. It's something that has been supported by all members in this House, Honourable Speaker. So when they were they cite evidence from 2004. When they, when they cite evidence from 2004 suggesting that, when they, when they ought to know where those documents came from. Ministers of Health in 2004 were the Honorable Colin Hansen, the leader of the opposition, Honorable Speaker. When they use that as evidence, that is simply misleading and not appropriate to the debate. Our health care workers have been through everything in the last two years. They deserve a serious debate. They deserve our support. They have it on this side. They have it, I think, all over the House, and that should be demonstrated every single day. House Leader. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, with all due respect to the Minister of Health, it's 2022, and our health care system, hospital after hospital after hospital, is in near collapse due to the challenges that are taking place within, within those hospitals. And the members of the opposition are simply bringing forward the stories, the, the testaments of frontline health care workers who are demanding action. They're demanding this, that this minister actually step up and take action to improve the dire situation 
in our hospitals. And I will highlight another hospital, the one in Kamloops, Royal Inlet, where the situation is dire. And nurses are speaking out in record numbers, despite the, the concerns that they have about potentially being uh, dismissed or having other, other uh, uh, types of, uh, of actions taken against them. One nurse had this to say uh, the other day, and I quote, what little staff we have is redeployed throughout the building and medical units, which should have eight nurses, very often have shifts where no nurses are booked to work, end quote. And Mr. Speaker, this is against the backdrop of reports that the nursing complement right now at Royal Inland Hospitals on most days is often at 50% of what a normal complement would be. That is unacceptable. So again, the question to the minister would be this. Will the minister let these nurses speak and will he fix the crisis at Royal Inland Hospital? Minister of Health. Well, uh, the member may think asserting that a policy has been placed in 2004 was put in place by this government is just par for the course in his conduct, conduct of, uh, of his role as an MLA, but I, I, I don't agree with it. The policy is the same. There's whistleblower protection and policies in place in the Interior Health Authority and everywhere else. They continue to be in place. In addition, this House, in the wake, frankly, of the health firings matter, which I will not go into here, put in place public interest disclosure legislation and unanimously passed it in 2019, which will also be in place in health authorities, Honourable Speaker. The members refer, and the members referred, and the member for Williams Lake, uh, Caribou South, referred to, uh, referred, to, uh, the, uh, uh, referred to the record around surgeries. Well, we've added net new, 299 net new uh, nurses, uh, surgical nurses, since we put in place the surgical renewal plan in March and May of 2020. That's action. The 84 measures to expand services, that's action. The best year in the history of British Columbia in terms of surgeries in one of the most complicated and difficult health years, that's action. The fact that more than 200 nurses have been hired at Royal Inland Hospital since January of 2021 is action. The fact that we have a dedicated staff of recruitment at that hospital is action. Look, I have visited Royal Inland Hospital. I have met with nurses. They have gone through the ringer and more over the last two years. I respect the work they do. They've communicated directly to me, and I've listened directly to them, their concerns, and we're going to continue to take action to support them because they deserve it. Our public health care system has done a remarkable job in dealing with this extraordinary period in the history of healthcare and the history of our province, and we'll continue to support our healthcare workers as we move forward through this year, 2022. Opposition House Leader Supplemental. Well, uh, Mr. Speaker, what nurses are saying at Royal Inland, what they're saying at Caribou Memorial, what they're saying at hospitals all across this province is that these hospitals are on the verge of collapse. That's what's happening today. Uh, the, uh, the, the reality is these nurses are coming forward in record numbers, and they are, they are saying that, but they are, they are worried about action being taken against them. Now, back to Royal Inland Hospital for a moment. Leaked data shows that there are up to 30 nursing shifts unfilled on any given day 
in the ICU and ER departments on any given day. But instead of getting the needed support, nurses face discipline up to and, and, and including uh, a dismissal for violating the NDP's gag order. This is what BC Nurses Union President Amon Graywall uh, uh, confirms, uh, has confirmed and, and, uh, with respect to this discipline, and I quote, all that they're doing is advocating on behalf of their patients, letting the public know the reality of what public health care is like right now, end quote. So again, will the minister drop the gag order? Will he act to end the health care crisis at Royal Inland Hospital so that patients and, 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 and health care workers uh, can, 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 can go in and know that safety is not being compromised? Minister of Health. Well, thank you, Honourable Speaker. And the member has done it again. And really, I, I, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll allow, I won't characterize uh, what he's doing. But when he refers to an NDP gag order, and, and they quoted from a document uh, from uh, March 2004, a policy, a code of conduct that has been placed since that time in health authorities that have whistleblower protection, for a government brought in the Public Interest Disclosure Act to protect whistleblowers, and that we protect them everywhere, from a Minister of Health who did raise issues around health employees in the Ministry of Health for years, yes, and brought in changes to ensure things were better. You bet, Honourable Speaker. And as well, there are significant issues facing healthcare professionals and healthcare workers everywhere. And I expect to hear from them on their issues. They actually have a duty to report issues, and they do, Honourable Speaker. And I, I would say, Honourable Speaker, that uh, the efforts and the work done by everyone to support healthcare workers in primary care, in long-term care, in acute care, to ensure our long-term care homes, 88% of them are not below standard in terms of staffing, which was a situation that existed when I became Minister of Health changes is my responsibility, and you bet I'll exercise it. Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, the Minister can get up and say what he wants, but by every single measure, British Columbia is in a health care crisis. One in, one in five British Columbians can't get a family doctor. They are being forced to rely on emergency rooms and walk-in clinics. Wait times are the worst in Canada in those clinics. And on top of that, we have healthcare workers that are frustrated, they are angry, and they are burned out. And what does the minister say? He gets up and regularly all is well and points British Columbians to an urgent and primary care centre. Well, you can imagine our shock when we received a leaked internal document, Urgent and Primary Care Centre Dashboard. And that dashboard laid out just how ineffective those clinics are. In urgent and primary care centres across the province, according to the leaked document, the average number of patients per practitioner per day is 4.6. That's right, five patients a day or less. So it's time for the minister to end the empty rhetoric, get up in this house, 
acknowledge that British Columbia and its healthcare system is in a crisis and do something about it. Minister of Health. Honourable Speaker, British Columbia has been in a public health emergency with respect to the overdose crisis since 2016. British Columbia has been in a public health emergency with respect to COVID-19 since March of 2020. You bet I've been reporting every day, virtually every day, on the challenges facing that system, which are exceptional. We talk about primary care, happy to talk about primary care. In the year 2018-19, uh, on the fee-for-service side, there was about 17.8 million fee-for-service visits. Most recent year, most recent year, there were 19.5 million. Right? Uh, the year ending March 31st, 2022. But what happened, of course, in the meantime, was the most radical, the most revolutionary set of changes to the system that had ever taken place. Because of those visits in 2018-19, 97% of them were in-person visits. And when the COVID-19 pandemic was, was, uh, was proclaimed, substantive and fundamental changes were required to, make, to deal with that. So a very significant number of those visits, in fact, we went from about 600,000 virtual visits in, uh, in uh, the first year, uh, in, in the previous year, in the pre-pandemic year, to 13 million in order to provide primary care, to stabilize the primary care system in what was a public health emergency. That occurred to ensure an increase in the number of visits and to ensure people got primary care in the best way they possibly could in a public health emergency. That's what occurred. Now, in the 2021-22 fiscal year, that went from seven to five million. I want to assure the opposition I'm going to sit down so the member will have her supplementary. That, move, that number moved, the in-person visit moved back from five to seven million. It'll be moving back this year. This is the most fundamental change the system has ever seen, and our primary care teams did an exceptional job of dealing with it. Leader of the official opposition, supplemental. Well, again, you know, the minister can, can stand up and let's talk about the here and now. Let's talk about British Columbians who are desperate for a family doctor in this province. Let's talk about healthcare workers who are afraid to speak up and talk about the situation in their particular hospitals. And let's talk about the dashboard. Let me read to the minister exactly what the dashboard says. And for his, uh, his uh, benefit, I want to be clear, this is a here and now document leaked to the opposition. And here's what it says. Patients per day per practitioner, 4.6. That is a shocking number. And the minister knows that what's even worse is British Columbians are telling him and this government on a daily basis that the system isn't working. They can't get in. It's no wonder that the Esquimalt and North Quadra urgent and primary care centres were both at capacity by 8.30 this morning. Family doctors see up to 40 patients a day. But the data in the leaked dashboard shows three patients per day in Fraser Health, 3.1 at the Surrey Newton Clinic, and 0.9 patients per day at the Abbotsford Clinic. It is absolutely no wonder that we have a crisis in confidence in the healthcare system in British Columbia. 
that is on this minister and this government's watch. Will he stand up today and acknowledge the challenges that healthcare workers and patients and British Columbians are facing, admit that it is a crisis, and do something about it? Minister of Health. Uh, Honourable Speaker, uh, I would say that this is something, I think I said it in my first answer, that I've said every day. We're in two public health emergencies, and they have a significant impact on every healthcare system, worker in our system. On the issue of primary care, as the member knows, because I just told her this, and the data is, uh, is readily available, we went from about 17.9 million inpatient visits uh, in 2018-19 to uh, between 5 and 5.5 million visits in 2020-21 as a result of the pandemic. That meant that a lot of people, a lot of people, the majority of people who would typically visit family practice doctors did so virtually in what I think was an extraordinary and a change that happened in a matter of a couple of weeks, Honourable Speaker. Billing codes were put in place to protect the family practice system and ensure people continued to have access to care through virtual care. In addition, Honourable Speaker, the 27 urgent and primary care centres, the 53 primary care networks, the new community health centres, the primary care networks have 27 new funded employees in Prince George, the Prince George one alone, Honourable Speaker, are doing their work to contribute to, to the implementation of team-based care, a necessary prerequisite. In addition, we're taking steps to give uh, particularly doctors other options and dramatically expanding, doubling the number of nurse practitioners. Honourable Speaker, the member may feel that the million visits to urgent and primary care centres at a time when in-person visits were at a premium was not the right approach. I think for those million people, it was a pretty good result. The bell ends the question period.